So I have these three journalists and they're covering the stories. So they, you know, they will go and they'll be talking to the scientists. But then they also, each section of the book opens with an editorial meeting. So the editor paper, which happens to be the Boston Globe, is assigning people to go out and and cover different stories. And then they talk about the stories and how they're going to cover them and what's important and what's not. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, William Sargent. Uh, We're going to talk about on edge, climate change, COVID-19, and the war in Ukraine. Uh, William Sargent, he's a NOVA consultant, uh, author of 27 books about science and the environment, a recipient of the Boston Globe's Winship Award, uh, which he describes uh, his 20s and 30s, uh, how he wandered and uh, would go on oceanographic trip, uh, ships and uh, saw the world, essentially. And we'll get more into that detail shortly, but uh, welcome, William. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it sounds like you have a really unique, interesting background. Would you mind just giving a brief sketch of you know where you've been and some of the things you've seen, and then we'll talk about your current work? Yeah. Well, it took me a while to to figure out what I really wanted to do, and you know I was dealing with the sciences, but then I realized what I really like to do is write, and you know I've been writing most of my life, and of course at that time nobody knew that there was this kind of sexy occupation called a science writer, but now we know it. So as an undergraduate, I got a job working on an oceanographic vessel, the Atlantis II, out of Woods Hole, and we were on a cruise to Africa and South America and up into the Baltic. And that kind of, that you know, I had the travel bug from then on. And I did some filming of the Iktok oil spill down off of Mexico and also filmed the spill in New Orleans. I just actually just got back from New Orleans. And the last two times I've been down there, one was after the oil spill, the BP oil spill, and the other was after Hurricane Katrina. So it was nice just going to New Orleans without having any disaster that I had to cover. Okay. And what is your new book about? What do you want to discuss today? Yes, I actually have two books. I wrote World on Edge, and I wrote this in 2001. We were still kind of right in the midst of COVID. We were concerned about the Omicron variant that was coming, and the war in Ukraine was just getting started. So we were very concerned about potentially having a nuclear exchange over that. So it was, you know, it was a gloom and doom scenario that we were in. And so I, you know, had to write sort of a gloom and doom book. And when I finished it, I realized I really wanted to write something that was more positive because there are a lot of positive things that we're beginning to do to solve, particularly solve some of the, the problems with the climate. And and I also wanted to make it a, you know, a people story. So I have written it as a as a novel. And it's basically about the interactions between three journalists, one covering COVID, another covering the climate, 
and a third covering the war in Ukraine. And so I think they're very sort of personable journalists. And it's just a, I feel it's a very interesting way to deal with it. You're both dealing with their personal lives and covering these topics. And by having two or three people, you can talk about different aspects of the topic that you maybe couldn't have if it's just one-on-one. So what does this mean? You, you, you interviewed specific people about each of these topics and you added in your own commentary or what's the format? Well, it's a novel. So I, I have these three journalists and they're covering the stories. So they, you know, they will go and they'll be talking to the scientists. But then they also, each section of the book opens with an editorial meeting. So the the editor paper, which happens to be the Boston Globe, is assigning people to go out and, and cover different stories. And then they talk about the stories and how they're going to cover them and what's important and what's not. So it allows you to give some sort of opinions from inside, from the people who are familiar with all these topics. So I I think it worked very well. And of course, for me, I wanted to delve deeper into a lot of these subjects. A lot of my writing has been very local. I've been using I've been using Plum Island, which is a which is a an island close to close to where I live in Ipswich, Massachusetts. And I've been using that as a case study for sea level rise. Matter of fact, just before we went on air, I we we have a a, a series of cameras set up on the beach, and there's about a half dozen houses that are in danger of toppling into the ocean. And the Army Corps of Engineers has come in to they've dredged the Merrimack River, and they're using that sand to create a beach in front of the houses. And it's it's worked incredibly quickly. Just in the last uh, three or four days, they've spread the equivalent of four or five football fields worth of sand in front of these houses. And, you know, if everything goes well, the nature will shape that that shape the beach in the dunes. As you get storms, it will push the the uh, the sand up on the beach and create berms and then dunes. And actually what People are going to do is go out there and plant dune grass uh, in the in these little nascent dunes. So, and again, when I started writing these stories about sea level rise, initially I wrote them, you know, as straight scientific stories. And then I realized, no, really, these are, are these are good people stories. So, actually, the first one that I wrote was about uh, Cape Cod, and I finished the whole book. I was on the last chapter, and all of a sudden, I realized, no, this is a people story. And I ended up having to rewrite the whole book uh, as a almost like a novel, talking about the interactions between the the lawyers and the scientists and the homeowners about what they were facing with with sea level rise. So you're looking at one island, and you're saying that uh, you're you're calculating sea level rise for the whole world based on what's happening in this one beach, or you know what are the numbers on sea level rise? It's not so much. Sea level rise is actually the least important thing when you're looking at at erosion on a on a barrier beach. The most important things are storms. And you can have a storm that will remove 100 feet of, of, of beach in a single storm. We have very high tides up here. So we have anywhere from, you know, nine feet up to, to uh, 12 foot tides. And if they come in with a storm, you have the equivalent of maybe 30 feet of waves and storm surge that's coming in and and tearing the sand off the beach. So you compare that to sea level rise, which is 
you know, you know, it, it might average something like about six inches every 20 years. And that's going up. Problem will come when sea level rise goes up to a foot over 100 years. And that will be so much that the barrier beaches can't migrate. The way they do that now is they have what's called rollover. When you have a storm, it will wash the sand off, off the front of the beach and then wash it over the, the, the barrier island and into the marshes. And so in a single storm, that whole island may roll over anywhere from 60 to 100 feet. I remember a number of years ago, I was down in Dolphin Island in Alabama, and there were these houses that were sitting out in the Gulf of Mexico, and they had these little porches on them. And, and I thought, well, isn't that clever? They've, they've designed these houses so that they can fish off the porch. And I was talking to some people on the beach, and they said, no, no, that's not the case at all. Those houses had been on the beach last year, the year before. And a storm came in and washed 100 feet off the 100 feet of the beach was washed away, leaving these houses out, you know, in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. When it, when a beach is washed away, is it uniformly distributed under the water and it's gone? Or is it redistributed somewhere else and a beach is built up somewhere else? Or is that not what happens? It does through this rollover action. It beach sort of has to move and flex and roll over towards the mainland. So the, the, the beach changes, but, it's, but it still maintains its in, integrity. If you, if you get more than a foot of sea level rise over 100 years, then it's too fast for the beach to move. And then you'll start opening up inlets and the beaches will, will break apart and eventually drown. And that, that could be happening in the next anywhere from 30 to 50 years. And, you know, we have about 300 barrier beaches around the, around the, the United States, and a lot of them are developed. Um, they have a number of houses that are on the beaches, for instance, and, and that's the case with, with Plum Island. And one of the things that I was looking at is the history of the island. And, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, people had little shacks out there. They were basically hunting camps and fishing camps, and they had no running water. They had no sewer system. They just had outhouses. And they were probably worth maybe $10,000, $20,000. And actually, if you had a storm and you had some erosion, all they would do is hook the houses up to a team of horses and pull the houses up the beach, further up the beach. And then they'd be okay for another 20 years. But then in 1991, they put in a sewer lines in the beach. And so all of a sudden, everybody uh, built permanent year-round houses. And, you know, they sunk their whole life savings into these houses. So the, the problem has just been compounded. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. 
So what, what would be the suggestion to build up the beaches uh, so that they can't be washed away as easily to protect these particular houses? Or what would be a solution? Well, the, the, ultimately, the solution is that people shouldn't be living on barrier beaches. And, you know, people are starting to move off the barrier beaches. The, the ironic thing is that uh, often, you know, you'll have a storm, it will wash away a, a house and you'll have this empty lot and a developer will come in and be able to buy that lot very cheaply, build a house and sell it and make a profit before the next storm comes. And it might be just in the next following year. And, the, you know, the people, we have one instance where some people were on the West Coast and they saw an advertisement for this house on the East Coast right on the water. And this was the dream that they were looking for. And they ended up buying buying that house. And that's one of the houses that that in trouble right now. We've actually tried to pass some regulations so that real estate agents would have to give you the history of a house. But the but the real estate lobbies have been able to kill that that regulation so far. Okay. What what other subjects uh, in your most recent two books did you get some interesting insights into in addition to this? Yeah, well, I have, you know, one of my journalists has gone off to uh, Siberia, a place called Verhansk, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I think I am. And it actually has the greatest temperature range in the world. It has gone from uh, 90 degrees below zero to 104 degrees above zero. And so there's almost a 200 degree range there. And of course, you know, this is the permafrost is melting. There's actually a black market trade in tusks of woolly mammoths because the uh, the rivers are rising and they're eroding out the permafrost and unearthing some of these woolly mammoths. So I have her, you know, fly up to Siberia and I have a scene there where the it's so cold that the windshield of the vehicle that they're in explodes. And so there, she's huddled with all these, you know, Russian vodka swilling scientists. And uh, as she said, you know, she had never even met a, a Russian before. And here she was in a group hug. I actually got that story from Ken Alabek. And Ken had been the, high, the head of Biopreparat, which was the, the Soviet Union's biological warfare unit. And he had defected to this country and, you know, he used to have KGB agents and bodyguards and, and drivers and everything like that. And anyway, I, I was writing a book about, about biological warfare and I wanted to, you know, see if I could reach him. And I thought, well, you know, it'll probably take me years. I don't have to write letters. And finally, one afternoon I said, well, well you know, I'll just give it a cold call. And I called him up and boom, there he was on the phone. And he was an incredibly personable guy. And, you know, we were going back and forth and it was Ken and Bill and we were talking on and on. And he actually told me the story when the U.S. inspectors went over to inspect the, the, the Soviet Union biological laboratories. They weren't admitting that they were doing biological warfare at the time. But the same thing happened uh, and the windshield broke in the car that they were in and, they, and everybody got into this group hug. So there's a lot of things in the book that are stories like that that have either happened to me or people that I've known. Other, um, other subjects, uh, maybe not in the environment, but uh, Ukraine itself, you mentioned that as one of the three big topics 
what are some of the insights from uh, your journalists or journalists there that you've gotten on the situation? Yeah. Well, my, my journalist there uh, is a guy called Gregor McFadden, and he was actually had been a sports writer, and he got jilted by his girlfriend and decided he would change and, you know, uh, become a war correspondent. Uh, and he figured he would rather, he was more afraid of falling in love again than, than, uh, than covering a war. Um, so I have him, uh, he, you know, meets an ambulance driver called Petra, and she's very tied into what's going on. You know, she brings him out into the field and she introduces him to some of her, of her friends from her, you know, nightclubbing days. And one of them is a sniper. And she, you know, talks to him about her training. And one of the first things they do is they get training in, in camouflage because often the snipers are actually sleeping, you know, within maybe 50 meters of, of the Russians. And, you know, one of the things she said is that uh, she wanted to, she was, she hadn't gotten her first Russian general yet. All the snipers wanted to get the, get the higher military officers. And so they always look for people with gray hair because they know they're older and they're probably the, the officers. But anyway, so she had this training in camouflage. And then, you know, the two are kidding about how she always used to talk about putting her war paint on. And she says, yes, I'm, I'm still putting my war paint on. What do you see as, uh, you know, over the next, I mean, for the rest of this year in Ukraine, do you have any insights uh, that you feel on how things are going to go and what will happen? I yeah, think, that, it, yeah. Everybody is sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. I think there's a lot of sort of game playing going on. And, you know, we're assuming, everybody is assuming that um, that Ukraine is going to make probably a series of counter strikes. Ultimately, they would like to capture, recapture Crimea. But I think they're staying up at Bakhmut, which is up in the east. And frankly, they've been there because they've been able to just pound the, the, the Russian army and particularly the Wagner group and have done, you know, incredible damage on them. So when they do make their move, you know, the Russian army is, is going to be significantly deteriorated. Um, but you still have the fact that, you know, Russia is this immense country with a, a huge amount of resources. And, you know, they've been using those resources just to pound and pound and pound train, which is which is not a huge country. So, you know, hopefully they'll get the they'll get the weapons, continue to get the weapons that they need. And they've been incredibly clever. And of course, they have the inside lines of communication so they can move much quicker to get from one front to another and they've been incredibly clever using drones and using anti-aircraft artillery uh to knock down you know some of the, particularly the russian uh helicopters and of course we remember when they um you know crushed the the convoys that were coming in from russia that they russia figured they were going to capture kiev in in five days and they even had people had their you know their dress uniforms for what was going to be their victory parade and of course they got a got a big surprise when crane was able to defend the city so well and has gone on to recapture a lot of areas that that uh, russia had captured before and uh, you mentioned uh, also covid so any developments it seems like uh, you know the world is suddenly said a few months ago, oh, you know, forget about it, move on. But uh, what, what do you see yeah. as the aftermath of COVID or what's happening now? 
Well, a number of things. Of course, the uh, and it turned out I I wrote the first book that looked at the at the lab leak hypothesis, and I don't have a horse in the race. I just was looking at at, at a, as a scientific problem. But I do think that the longer that epidemiologists can't fa- find what's called the amplifier organism, then the more likely that, you know, that COVID didn't start because, because of a spillover from nature, but that it, that it could have come uh, about because of a lab accident. And, you, you know, this, you have accidents in labs all the time. And actually, the recent report that came out from the energy department was interesting to me because it's the energy department that oversees Fort Dietrich, which is where our biological warfare unit used to be. We stopped doing offensive biological warfare in 1969, but we're still doing what's called defensive biological warfare. And that means that you will take a You'll take a virus, say a coronavirus, and you'll do what's called gain of function research. So you take that virus and inject it into a into a ferret or a rat, um, and the virus will mutate. And then you take it out and you inject it into the next ferret, and it might mutate some more. And after so many ferrets, it has gained the function of being contagious, so it can jump from ferret to ferret, which means it can also jump from human to human. So they're all that has to happen is the ferret sneezes or the, the technician that is doing the injection misses and, and injects himself in the hand and he would become patient number one. And in fact, a lot of the people, the initial people who died were in the Union Hospital, which was close to the Wuhan Virology uh, Center. So I think that's, I, you know, you, you have those two plausible hypotheses. I think the important thing is not so much which one is correct, but the fact that we've had this debate about it, and we now realize that the next pandemic could either come from a lab accident or from a spillover event. And so we, A, we have to be more careful about doing this gain of function research, possibly banning it entirely. And also we have to be more careful about encroaching on nature and doing things like eating bush meat so that we come in contact with these amplifier organisms and could pick up a pandemic that way. Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you feel like you've adequately covered uh, these three subjects or is there still a lot more to the story for all of them? Or what's what's uh, next? You know, 27 books is, is just a start, it sounds like for you. So so what's next now? What are you yeah. thinking about? Well, I think, you know, uh, in these books, I, I brought up, I think some there are some real game changers. Of course, the big one be if we can if we can solve all the problems around nuclear fusion and we're starting to put a lot of money into that. And I think we will be able to solve them. And that would that would make a huge difference. The other thing about the climate is that we really have most of the technology that we need to switch from, from fossil fuels to green energy. But, but we're not doing, rather than replacing fossil fuels with green energy, we're simply having, we're producing more energy. So we're still using twice as much energy and I think we should re- really be cutting back on energy. I'm sort of old school about this. You know, I grew up in the environmental world where 
you said you're going to have to make some sacrifices and you're going to have to have things like taxes on, on gasoline. And of course, that was very politically unacceptable. And now you have this, what I call feel-good environmentalism, that essentially we can build our way out of the environmental crisis by you know, using better cement, switching to electric vehicles. And those are all you know, very good things, and we should be doing them as quickly as possible. But we also have to be cutting back, really cutting back on fossil fuels and, and leaving, leaving a lot of it in the ground. I mean, we, we have to make that transition. You know, we still have to use a certain amount of, of fossil fuels, but we're, we're a little bit like an addict that, you know, he keeps making promises to himself, well, I'm going to stop drinking tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and he said, well, I'll just have one beer. And that's kind of what we're doing. You know, we're, we're, we're making all these grand promises that we're not, that we're getting away from fossil fuels. But then when you come right down to it, you have something like the Willow Project. And, you know, we're selling, still selling leases down in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's a little bit of backsliding there. Right. Okay. Well, very good. William, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? And if they want to start reading your books, uh, any suggestions on, you know, can they start with any of them or are there any particular ones you think they should start with? Well, yes. uh, You know, the most recent one is, well, two of them, World on Edge and Backstory. And then I have a number of other books, all, you know, about science and, and the environment. Some of them, I've had one called Energy Wars. I had one about Hurricane Katrina, had one about Fukushima, and I've had several. My my first book was actually a companion book to a Nova film about a year in the life of a bay on, on Cape Cod. And that was called Shallow Waters, a year on Cape Cod's uh, Pleasant Bay. And then also more recently, I've had a, a book called Crab Wars, and that's about how horseshoe crabs my subtitle is Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Bioterrorism, and Human Health. And basically, everybody that's listening to this podcast's lives have been protected by horseshoe crab blood. Um, anything that's going to come in contact with the human blood system has to be checked to make sure it's free of, of what are called gram-negative bacteria. And the way that is done is with horseshoe crab blood. So a quart of processed horseshoe crab blood is worth about $1,500. So the book is called Crab Wars, and it, it tells you all all the things that probably, you know, that everybody should know about the industry. And of course, the big change now is the possibility of using gene splicing. So we, we won't have to use, you know, th- hundreds of thousands of live crabs to produce this um, called limiosamibocyte lysate. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's an amazing breadth of topics. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about all the, the books you've written and the topics you've looked into. And uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed this. This was fun. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.